Hello, good evening, good day and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Avijit show. I hope you're all doing very well. Today we discuss science, which is everyone's favorite subject as we know. Uh, so let's see who all is there with us today. You can see Praful, Crazy Brain, Durga, Dr. Nishchai, Alpha, Rishikesh, Nikhil, Vineet, Prabal, John Tiru. GK, TK, Priyanshi, Neelansh, Dungar Singh Johan, Vidyarthi, Lakshya, Ayush, Tiwari, Sangeet, Lover, Ambarish, Rahul, Chiching, Dharmendra, Ram, Ram Samir, Nikhil, Kirito Ito, Trupti, Vladimir, Adityanath, Neelansh, Goel, Rahul, Dharmendra, Crazy Boom, and lots of other people. Let's see who all who else is there. Pratik, Nikhil, Ayush, Hideki Ryuga, Shivaji Itape, Mac Per, Anish, Shri Harsha, Lineshwar, descendant of Rigvedic clans, Sahil Verma, Neil, and lots of other people. Shashank, Shurveer, Edit, someone, Kumudini, Manojit, Roger Fighter, Jason, and so on. Good evening, good day, all of you. So, shall we get into the questions? As we always do, without further ado, let's get right into the questions. Samir Joshi says, why don't we feel the Earth's rotation? Mm, why don't we feel it? So the Earth, the Earth rotates, goes round and round, right? So why don't we feel that? And the rotation speed is reasonably fast. Uh, let's take a look at the screen, shall we? What does the Earth look like? The Earth is a planet... Um, Google Maps, where is Maps? Here is Maps. So it's a, it's reasonably round and it rotates. It rotates from east to west. I believe that's the rotation direction or whatever it is. I mean, the sun rises in the east, that's what we know. And the Earth's rotation is reasonably fast. I mean, 500 kilometers per, per hour, per second, something like that. Whatever it is, you can look it up. It's a fast rotation. So the question is, why don't we feel it? Why aren't we thrown away? When the Earth, because of the Earth's rotation, why are we just here where we are and we feel nothing? Think about it this way. Let's say you're sitting in a car. The car is traveling at, let's say, 50 kilometers an hour on your road. Yes. Do you feel something happening? You feel some, some movement from time to time, which is when the car accelerates or decelerates or changes direction. But if it is just going straight without changing its speed or velocity, you feel nothing. You can just sit comfortably in there and nothing happens. Let's imagine you're sitting in a plane, in, in an aircraft. So the aircraft, it uh, you get inside, you say, you take your seat and all, all the formalities are done. Then the aircraft goes towards the runway. Yeah. Then it lines up with the runway. And then it, the pilot uh, turns on, throttles the engines. And the engines go full blast. And that's when you are pushed back against your chair, right? When the plane accelerates. So once again... It's only when you're pushed back, when the plane accelerates and changes speed, that you feel the movement. But once you're in the air, once everything settles down, you feel nothing. You can walk around and do whatever you want. You can have food. Yes. So the same thing happens on the Earth. When you're sitting on the Earth planet, the planet is moving at the same speed. The speed isn't changing. There is no acceleration or deceleration. That's why you feel nothing. Right? You're essentially in a quasi-inertial frame of reference. That's 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 how it feels like from your perspective. It's not exactly an inertial frame of reference, but yeah. So, so 
as long as there is no no acceleration or deceleration you're going to feel nothing because you are attached to the planet your feet your chair whatever your bed yeah and you are part of it essentially and you feel nothing because it's it's going on at the same speed the 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 rotation isn't slowing down or speeding up if for whatever reason the rotation were to suddenly speed up yeah that's when you will feel it that's when it will be, will be thrown up, thrown in some direction or for some reason if the rotation were to suddenly slow down you would again feel the same kind of thing and you will be thrown in the opposite direction but as long as the rotation is the same the same speed you feel nothing because of how you feel in a car when the car is going at the same speed in a straight line you feel nothing when you're sitting in a plane the plane is flying at the same speed you feel nothing right and when the plane is taking off or or landing or when there is bad weather the the seat belt sign comes on so that's what tells you that yeah right now there's going to be some acceleration or deceleration or movement from side to side and we need to be in the chair otherwise we will be thrown out yeah, we will be we will face some kind of problem uh, staying where we are so that's why we need to sit down and take put on the seat belt and that's how it goes so that in brief is why we do not feel the rotation of the earth hmm okay let's take another question the next one swapnil mishra says uh two questions firstly which aspects of photosynthesis are still not well understood by science and secondly since solar panels take up so much land space is it possible to optimize plants directly or indirectly to harness solar energy through artificial photosynthesis by converting sunlight plus carbon dioxide plus water into clean clean fuel okay so uh photosynthesis which aspects of photosynthesis are not well understood by science so first let's talk about what we do understand about photosynthesis photosynthesis is the the it's the it's the process the reaction by which plants convert sunlight and water and carbon dioxide into a different a different form of energy which is essentially glucose and carbohydrates and they give off oxygen as as a byproduct right so how does this happen plants have leaves we know them right we know we see leaves everywhere yeah these leaves they uh in the cells of these leaves there are organelles so like in the human body there are organs within a cell within the cells in our bodies and in cells of plants you have organelles which are different components that uh, that carry out various functions so one of these organelles inside a cell uh, inside a plant cell a leaf cell is called a a chloroplast chloroplast now this chloroplast uh, organelle contains a, a pigment clo- called chlorophyll now what does this chlorophyll do it's a, it's a pigment it absorbs energy from the light waves which is the rays of the sun the photons that come from the sun now if you look at the sun's light it is white light it looks yellowish but it's actually white light it's a combination of all the different uh, colors of the visible spectrum and much more so it's white light so the chlorophyll absorbs not all of this light but some of this light it absorbs the light uh, photons in the blue part of the spectrum and the red part of the spectrum and it reflects photons in the green part of the spectrum which is why plants and their leaves appear green okay so the chlorophyll absorbs this sunlight the energy from these light waves and this energy is 
converted into chemical energy in the forms of a couple of molecules ATP, adizone, adeno, adenosine triphosphate and something called NADPH which you can look up I don't remember the exact uh, full form but these are two molecules that uh, store energy essentially they, they are related to the energy and we also have ATP etc in our in our bodies so chlorophyll by some process absorbs these photons that come in from the sunlight in certain color ranges yeah and then there is a process that takes place which converts so not only the the sunlight is required you also need carbon dioxide so carbon dioxide is pre present in some quantities in the atmosphere yes so the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and water from the soil so the plants they they extract water out of the soil through the roots they then the, the process of, of, of photosynthesis also needs carbon dioxide and sunlight certain uh, certain uh, frequencies or wavelength of sunlight so then what happens is there is a process that takes place which is not very well understood which converts oxygen and water uh, sorry it, it converts uh, it takes water plus carbon dioxide plus energy from the sunlight and it that gives you glucose so it is uh, what is the chemical reaction like it is six it is six h2o plus six co2 which gives you one molecule of of uh, glucose plus some extra oxygen is given out yeah that's typically how it is you can i'm sure it's all available online you can look it up so that's how it works uh, now how does this happen it is a question so the process of photosynthesis is is something that happens with the help of certain proteins there are certain proteins that act like antennas they receive the photons they they take the photons and then this uh, then the energy is passed into uh, a molecular machine essentially within the within the plant's uh, insides yeah within the cell and this molecular machine uh, operates at the molecular and atomic level and we don't quite know how this works and that's where the conversion of all of this happens the chemical reaction happens now we can take photographs through through via microscopes electron microscopes or whatever but it only shows you a photograph a snapshot of a dynamic process now inside inside the plant you have living material right these proteins are synthesized, they degrade, then the new protein is synthesized. This entire molecular machinery is something that is dynamic. It lasts for a while, then it degrades, and then it is replaced by something new. And this process is also very dynamic. It happens in an ongoing fashion. And even if we take photographs or we take uh, scanning, tunneling, my electron microscope images, we only see a snapshot of something that, that is a long process. So that's why we don't quite understand how it happens. And of course, this happens at the at the molecular and atomic level, which is the realm of quantum mechanics. So once again, we don't quite know how this happens. And that's that's the that's the part where we don't quite understand, right? Because we don't have the means of peering deep inside and seeing things happen dynamically in real time at the atomic and molecular level. So that's where we don't quite know how it happens. Now, photosynthesis itself is not a very efficient uh, process. Of all the energy that's incident upon a, upon a plant leaf, I think about, about between 3 and 11% is used, is actually utilized by the process of photosynthesis. Uh, more than 90% of the 
essentially 90% or more of the energy that's incident on the leaf is uh, not utilized in photosynthesis. Uh, so it's not a very efficient process. And yet it's way more efficient than our solar panels and all that. So there is a, um, there's research ongoing into how to uh, how to do artificial photosynthesis because that would be great because uh, you know yeah so uh, the, now the second question is about solar panels they take up too much space uh, is it possible to just optimize plants to harness solar energy through artificial photosynthesis uh, this matter well to do that we would have to understand how the process works thoroughly you need to understand how the process works and you need to be able to replicate that in a, in a repeatable manner and we are not yet there quite quite there yet mm -hmm. because we don't understand how it works at the uh, molecular and atomic level uh, we don't even understand the molecular the the molecular reactor essentially which which uh, uh, which makes the process happen so yeah we are not there if we can do uh, i mean cre create a machinery molecular machinery that can do artificial photosynthesis that would be a great leap forward and then you could have artificial plants or 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 bioengineered plants or whatever it is that could help us um, in some way harness solar energy more efficiently uh, than than the, than how solar panels do it. So yeah, we are there is research that's ongoing in various parts of the world about how to about possibly having a breakthrough and achieving the artificial photosynthesis, but we are not quite there yet. We are still quite a way far from there and, and it's strange because photosynthesis is is what gave birth to life essentially in on our planet uh if you look at the history of the earth the first unambiguous evidence that we have of life it dates back to about 3.77 billion years before today right the planet is about four and a half billion years old so around 3.77 billion years before today you had the first life on the planet and most of the original life the earliest life was photosynthetic life you had cyanobacteria and various other uh, unicellular organisms eventually they gave rise to multicellular organisms and all of these relied on photosynthesis and photosynthesis essentially takes the sunlight it uh, uses water and carbon dioxide to produce uh, glucose and various carbohydrates starches and all that and that's what plants uh, that's what uh, sustains plants and it is herbivorous animals that eat these plants and they gain the energy which has essentially come from sunlight and then you have carnivorous animals that eat those herbivorous animals and that's where how the energy is transferred through you know through these processes so yeah it would be great if you could achieve artificial or or, or discover how to do photosynthesis artificially but we are not there so long way to go for that to happen Alpha says, maybe life on Earth is an experiment. That's why they visit us to see the progress. Mm -hmm. Interesting uh, interesting conjecture you make here, my friend. So, um, what if life on Earth is an experiment? See, there are people, you know what they do? They create these artificial ecosystems. They take a big jar, they put soil in there, they put some plants in there, they put some, I don't know, earthworms or whatever, uh, and some water. They seal this thing. And they expose it to sunlight 12 hours a day or something like that, 8 hours a day or whatever. And such ecosystems can be kept sealed for decades. I remember I had seen somewhere a guy who had this closed sealed off ecosystem in a glass jar that was around for that was 
sealed for 60 plus years and it was a thriving ecosystem you had plants growing inside and you had some bugs and things like that and generation upon generation of these plants and and creatures uh, insects etc were growing and thriving in this closed sealed of ecosystem similarly our planet the earth is one such sealed off ecosystem it's like a massive giant glass jar yeah sealed off by the vacuum of space there is this atmosphere we have this nice atmosphere um, that extends hundreds of kilometers well the edge of space is technically defined as three as, as 100 kilometers uh, above the surface but that's how it is so you have this atmosphere you have a significant amount of water and you have all this soil topsoil the uh, the earth's crust and all that and there could be something going on beneath the surf surface of the earth as well this massive ecosystem and it's being evolving for four and a half billion years yeah uh and life did emerge around 3.8 3.77 billion years before today so what if somebody came from elsewhere and seeded life put the seeds of life on our planet um there is a possibility that that there is obviously the, the, the theory of panspermia that a uh, panspermia that life was seeded on our planet from somewhere else maybe life the seeds of life exist throughout space throughout the galaxy throughout the universe and once in a while they 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 appear on a planet maybe on an asteroid or comet and that's the impact of the asteroid or comet that that brings the seeds of life to the planet and somehow that's how life is sparked off on planets that can sustain this sort of life carbon based life yeah that's a possibility or maybe there's a even more interesting possibility that maybe it is uh, alien civilizations that want to seed planets and you know put the seeds of, of life on various planets and maybe it's an experiment and maybe we don't know they are there but they are there and they're watching us and sometimes they make their appearance and then appear in the form of ufo's or whatever right yeah it is possible it is possible uh there's this famous science fiction book by arthur c clark uh, what is it called 2001 a space odyssey i think it's a it's a trilogy or something and i remember reading it a long time ago and in the prologue of of one of these things there was this uh, yeah it was not a seeding of life but it was the seeding of intelligent into apes in, intelligence into apes you know by exposing them to something or the other yeah so it's a possibility but do we have any evidence of that we don't have any evidence of that but you can't discount the possibility even though the probability is quite low it's still a non zero probability so maybe somebody from out there seeded life maybe dna dna the dna molecule is is incredibly complex and every single life form on earth has dna so the key the common factor in all life on the planet is dna yes every single life form has a certain dna i mean has has dna and the dna molecule differs there are different sets of genes on each organism which makes them different from each other it's the, the genetic blueprint for that species and yes every single species whether it's unicellular or multicellular or a higher life form or a very evolved life form like us we all have dna we are essentially carriers of dna we are essentially living bags and our sing- singular purpose is to pass on the dna from generation to generation yeah so maybe we believe that our life's purpose is to i don't know whatever the purpose of life is according to philosophers and w- what not self help experts and all that but maybe the actual biological purpose of life is just to pass on dna from one generation to another another and ensure the dna survives so maybe this dna was seeded into onto our planet by some alien life 
alien civilization possibility it's non zero it's always a possibility but the probability obviously it's remote because we don't have any evidence for this so yes there are all these conjectures and maybe some there could be some truth to some of these but we don't quite know yeah because we have never found any unambiguous evidence of aliens aliens right so that's what we can see about this matter as of now swapnil again researchers at the university of glasgow recently suggested that water might have actually come from the most unlikely source of all the sun hmm. did water crash into the earth from space by way of a massive comet or was it around long before our planet's formation yes so i am not aware of this um, recent piece of news Re recently suggested okay uh, that water might have actually come from the from the sun now let me try to think about how water could have come from the sun the sun as we know it's it's mostly hydrogen and a little bit of helium and trace amounts of other other uh, elements there is no way molecular water can survive there so how how would water could have come from the sun what we do know is that the sun gives off this massive amount of uh, solar wind it ejects expels all this plasma from its uh, from its atmosphere the sun has an atmosphere it ejects this solar wind maybe the solar wind could interact with asteroids and comets and uh, produce water is there a way it could happen i don't know i'm i'll have to look at the uh, the the research paper so let me not try to speculate as because i've not read it yet now the, the question is how did water appear on earth see the solar system formed for point something four and a half or slightly more than that billion years ago from a protostellar disk which is a disk like structure very very hot yeah it it uh, coalesces slowly under its own gravity at the center you have the formation of a star and nuclear fusion ignites and then around the around the protostar you have this big collection of debris swirling around and that too coalesces coalesces under gravity under self gravitation and that's how planets are formed and sometimes you have collisions in the early solar system early stellar systems you have various collisions until things stabilize a little bit and then you have all these fields of debris and the thing is this this protostellar disk arises out of gas clouds that exist before a star is born now these gas clouds typically come from the death of older stars yes so the protostellar disk that gave rise to the solar system that we live in it came from the death of a star that lived long before our sun existed yeah so our sun is maybe a second generation or even third generation star yeah now the gas disk or the gas cloud that existed and gave rise to our solar system typically would have come from the uh, from the death of a star older star in the form of a supernova explosion a supernova explosions they give off lots of uh, heavier elements uh this iron in there and all kinds of stuff right now what we do know is that so so what we know is that everything we see around us everything in our body is star star material star stuff it was all born inside it in the it was all forged in the furnace of an ancient star everything inside our body everything around us around us was forged in ancient stellar furnaces deep inside the nuclear fusion reaction that's how it all came and 
these old stars would have had planets most likely and water could have abounded on those planets yeah so the material that gave birth to the solar system it looks like there was a lot of water on it most of i mean even today when these asteroids they crash onto the planet especially a certain type a certain class of asteroid called carboniferous chondrites that i think that's what it's called so if you if you take a cross section of these meteor meteorites and you analyze them you find that there is about 3 to 20% water in these meteorites right so what is believed the well most popular uh theory the consensus theory is that in the very early phase of the solar system when the earth was very new there was this massive bombardment on the earth bombardment of ancient asteroids yes and that is what brought in all the water of the earth that's what uh, gave earth its oceans so all the water or most of it came from this asteroid bombardment and uh, some of the, some of it could have come from comets as well typically if you look at the isotopic composition of comets the deuterium to hydrogen ratio uh, if you if you you can analyze that or uh, it in comets by taking spectro by, by using spectrometers so i think they had analyzed the the deuterium to hydrogen ratio on various comets that came, that passed by the earth recently 1990s and all that comet hale bob hyakutake etc and they found that the deuterium to hydrogen ratio on, uh, in those spectrometer readings was twice that you find on in the earth's oceans so that that would indicate that if if that is typical of most comets then most likely it is not comets that gave us our water right or maybe they gave us only a small amount of, of the water that we have on the other hand when you see the uh, when you analyze these uh, the the deuterium to hydrogen ratio on carboniferous chondrites these meteorites you find it very similar to that in the oceans of the earth so that is a strong indicator that most likely it is this carboniferous chondrites that bombarded the early earth in very large numbers and most likely they it is these meteorites this bombardment this heavy bombardment that gave earth the earth its oceans and all the water yeah so that's what we know we know there is water on on comets comets are like dirty uh, snowballs a snowball lots of ice yeah uh, crystalline crystalline ice mixed with uh, dust and things like that so comets do have water but asteroids also have water and most likely the earth's water came from asteroids right so that's what we know that's the best theory that we have Arjun Sinha says how how does Cherenkov radiation make particles travel faster than light um it's 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 the other way around it is the traveling of particles faster than light within a certain medium that gives rise to Cherenkov radiation so the Cherenkov radiation doesn't make particles travel faster than light it is the faster than light travel of particles within a certain medium that gives off that that causes the, this radiation to be emitted okay let's take a look at look at cherenkov radiation what does it look like it's a blue glow let me put that on the screen cherenkov radiation what exactly is this we'll get into it in a moment so cherenkov radiation is typically something you see in nuclear reactors can you see this this blue glow yes blue glow again it's typically this bluish glow 
in nuclear reactors and that's what we call Cherenkov radiation. Now, what is this Cherenkov radiation? Does it make particles travel faster than light or is it the faster than light travel of particles that gives off Cherenkov radiation? So it's, the, here's how it is. Uh, the speed limit in the universe is the speed of light. Nearly 300,000 kilometers per second. Yes. Uh, that's the speed of light. Now, when it comes to... So this is in outer space, in the vacuum of space. That's where light travels at this speed. But in other media, let's say the Earth's atmosphere or glass or water, in these media, light travels at a slower speed because of the interaction of the photons with the molecules of the medium, right? So in nuclear reactors, typically you have this reactor which is immersed in water for cooling purposes and so on, right? Now, the nuclear fission reaction that is typically what you see, that is not typically, that's always what you see in Earth, in, in nuclear reactors created by humans. The nuclear fission reaction gives off these energetic, uh, fast-moving particles. And what you find is that these are very fast-moving particles and they break the speed of light limit in water. So light in water travels at 75% the speed of light in vacuum. Approximately 75% of the speed of light in vacuum. But these energetic particles given off by the nuclear fission reaction, they travel faster than the speed of light in water. But they can't break the speed limit of light in vacuum. Okay, so understand that. It's faster than the speed of light only in water. So this creates a shock wave, a conical shock wave of light that travels, uh, that, that that comes after the, the particle has passed you by. It's like the, the it's like the shock wave. It's like the shock wave or, or sonic boom produced by an aircraft that's traveling faster than the speed of light in, in speed of speed of sound in the atmosphere. Let's say you have a fighter plane. Let's say you're talking about the Tejas fighter plane, right? Uh, the Tejas fighter plane is, is a supersonic fighter plane. So it, it takes off, it flies in the air, and at some point in its travel, it goes supersonic. It crosses the Mach 1 limit. It crosses the sound barrier. So when this happens, the sound waves produced by the plane, they, they, they are trailing in the wake of the plane because the plane is for traveling faster than the speed of light, uh, sound. So that produces this conical, uh, conical uh, shock wave that uh, hits you only after the plane is gone. So when the plane is coming towards you supersonically, at the faster than the speed of, speed of sound, you hear nothing. It's only when the after the plane passes you by that you hear this shock wave, right? this big uh, shock wave. Uh, let's see, I'm sure there is some illustration of that over here. Yeah, this is the kind of shock wave that you, ha that you have. Uh, yeah, there you go, speed of sound, supersonic and all that. So that is a sonic shockwave. Cherenkov radiation is the light equivalent of that sonic shockwave. Right? So that is Cherenkov radiation. So let's say you have an electron that's passing through water uh, faster than the speed of light in water. Then it will the interaction of this electron with the light with the with the water molecules gives off this very high energy, very high very high frequency radiation that is typically in the blue end of the spectrum of the light spectrum. And when you have this process ongoing on a regular basis in a nuclear reactor, the entire water glows blue, 
right? So that is what Cherenkov radiation is. It doesn't make particles travel faster than light. It is the result of particles traveling faster than light in water or in any other medium. You can have some, some, a similar kind of effect in, in air also, I'm sure. Not that I know of it, but it's, it's certainly possible. Yeah. So that is what Cherenkov radiation is. A very interesting effect. It is named after a Russian physicist, Mr. Cherenkov. Okay, Vinu says, what is the evidence for the Big Bang Theory? How do we know the Big Bang happened? How do we know the universe is 13.7 whatever, 13.8 billion years old? Yeah. How do we know the Big Bang happened? What is the evidence for the Big Bang? So, so what's the evidence for the Big Bang? There are two pieces of evidence that make the most, well, which are the strongest pieces of evidence. One is the CMB, the cosmic microwave background. That's radiation that is the uh, afterglow, so-called, supposedly, of the Big Bang. And then you have the cosmological redshift distance relation, the, the Hubble relation, right? So these are the two pieces of evidence that provide the strongest support for the Big Bang theory. So what is the Big Bang theory? The Big Bang theory says that the universe originated as as a point in the very beginning the universe was just a point uh you could call it the big bang singularity and something made it expand the space time within it expand and that's what created the universe so how do we know this why did people propose the big bang theory so in the 19 early 20th century in the 1920s or so edwin hubble the american astronomer he he discovered that the universe is expanding, that the galaxies that we observe are all red shifted, which means that you have this uh, Doppler effect kind of thing happening and the universe, the, the galaxies are traveling away from us and the, uh, the expansion is actually accelerating, right? And that is the, the red shift distance relation, the Hubble constant. Uh, so if you, uh, if we know that the universe is expanding, the expansion is accelerating, then we can extrapolate that back in time. So right now, if the universe is getting bigger, in the past, it would have been smaller and smaller. And if you calculate it, it gives you, and the calculations have been refined over the decades. And now we know that the universe began around almost 13.8 billion years before today. That is the best uh, estimate or, or calculation that we have, right? Now, again, if the universe was infinite, almost infinitely dense, or maybe infinitely dense, and then it expanded, then you would have had certain properties that the universe would have had. Uh, for instance, in the very beginning, the universe was just pure energy, just pure energy. Then something called inflation happened, and inflation gave birth to mass. So the energy that was... Uh, that, that uh, condensed into, into, in the form of mass. But in, even then, after the inflation, if inflationary epoch, you had a very dense, very hot universe. So you had photons and you had the very early uh, subatomic sub particles. You had this plasma in the universe. Now think about it this way. Think of the sun. We know the sun is a very hot very, very hot ball of, of matter, yeah, all the hydrogen fusing into helium, that sort of fusion reaction is happening. In the core of the sun, these photons are born out of the nuclear re fusion reaction, all right? It gives off photons of light. These are actually gamma ray photons that are born in the core of the sun. Now, when we think of the sun, we think of a very luminous object, 
very hot, very bright. But these photons that emerge from the sun, they take more than 100,000 years to travel from the core of the sun to the outside. And that's, that's how they're emitted. So every single light photon that we observe has was born in the core of the sun, maybe 100,000 years ago, maybe a million or more years ago. It takes that long for that photon to journey out of the sun. Now, imagine the universe as dense as the sun. It was at one point in time. So the photons had a very small mean-free path. They were constantly bumping into these subatomic particles and all that. And there was no light, which means that inside the sun, there is no light. The light is only outside the sun. The sun is luminous only outside. Inside the sun, it's all dark because the photons aren't able to move around. They're constantly being bumping into other particles and being emitted and reabsorbed and emitted and all that. So it's actually kind of dark inside the sun. It's only outside that it's shining and luminous. Uh, so the early universe was like that. It's only around about uh, between 240 to 300,000 years before today, uh, after the Big Bang, that the first light was able to emerge when the universe cooled down sufficiently for uh, hydrogen atoms to form, for them to capture electrons and, and for stable hydrogen atoms to form. It's only then that photons became free to travel and that's when you had the first light in the universe, right? So that's what the calculations tell us. That should have happened between 240,000 and 300,000 years after the Big Bang. So if this theory is right, those photons should still be around. Yes, in, in, in the very beginning, the photons were very energetic, very hot. But as the universe expanded, if it happened, and is it, is, it, is it expanded, it must have cooled down. So the photons would have been red shifted, stretched out, their wavelengths would have stretched out and they would have lost energy. And according to the, the, the calculations, they should be now in the millimeter range, I believe, right? Millimeter uh, range. So we do observe these photons, these cosmic microwave background photons. Uh, there was a COBE experiment in the 19, 19 what? 1980s, 1980s, 1990s. Then there was a WMAP experiment, a WMAP observatory, Wilkinson microwave anisotope, anisotropy, uh, whatever project or whatever it is. Yeah, WMAP. So this is a microwave. This is microwave radiation, not millimeter radiation, microwave radiation uh, and so on. Yeah. So we, then we had the, the Planck observatory, which went, which was operational about a decade and a half or so ago. So all of these various experiments have shown us, have demonstrated that the cosmic microwave background, the leftover afterglow of the first light of the big, after the big bang it still exists. And it's, it's very uh, low temperature radiation. Its temperature is about 2.725 or something Kelvin. Just a little bit above absolute zero. Yeah, very cold light. In the future, as the billions of years progress, it's going to get even colder. Yeah, it's going to lose even more energy because of redshifting and all. So all of these pieces of evidence tell us that the Big Bang actually happened. Otherwise, you would not see these things, right? So you have the cosmological redshift distance relation and the cosmic microwave background. So these two are the major pieces of evidence yeah, that, that provide the strongest support for the Big Bang theory. There are there have been other, other theories. Dr. Jain Narlikar had, had this theory called Hoyle-Narlikar theory, which was a form of steady-state universe. That the universe is eternal and unchanging, that sort of thing. But, well, the observational evidence doesn't support that. 
the observational evidence supports the Big Bang theory, what we call the Big Bang theory. So that, in brief, is the evidence for the Big Bang theory. That's how we know that this the Big Bang actually most likely happened. And that's how we know, because of the calculations, that the universe is approximately 13.7 billion years old. RTK says, there are some scientists who say that the Big Bang isn't the beginning of the universe. It's actually the end of some other universe. If it's true, does it mean that the previous universe was contracting at the rate at which the previous universe is expanding? Hmm. Um, see, the evidence, the observational evidence that we have is, is limited. It, it tells us that a Big Bang kind of thing would have happened. So, Based on all the evidence that we have, the best evidence that we have, we have constructed this theory of the origin and the history of the universe, which we call the Big Bang Cosmological Theory, right? Um, so, it says that in the past, the universe was contracted into, into this tiny, tiny little point, the Big Bang singularity, and right now it's expanding. So, yes, there are theories that say that maybe we had a, there was a universe before the Big Bang. Uh, maybe there's a bounce, big bounce kind of thing. A universe expa expands and then starts contracting and it contracts back into a point, so-called big crunch, but it just doesn't uh, stay as a point. It, it bounces back again. So that's a big bounce. That's a kind of cyclical universe kind of thing. Yeah. And then you have the uh, Roger Penrose theory of eons, cosmological eons. So... Uh, the expansion of the universe, it, it gives rise to the birth of a new universe, that sort of thing. Yeah, so we have these theories, but uh, thus far, these are just theories or just hypotheses, more or less, because uh, a theory has to be falsifiable, a scientific theory has to be falsifiable, and thus far, we don't have any means of either proving or disproving these theories, right? Uh, I think uh, Roger Penrose did give uh, some kind of indication as to how one could test the theory that could be ripples from an earlier universe left left behind in our universe or something like that. But yeah, we are still far from doing that. But it is certainly a possibility. It is certainly a possibility that that, that could have been our universe before our own. Yeah. Every universe has a certain timeline, has a certain lifetime. And eventually it uh, either contracts again, the expansion after a point stops and it goes into a contraction kind of thing and it goes back into the Big Bang singularity and then it expands again. <coughs> That's a possibility, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. So we have, people are working on various theories and if some evidence emerges and one could take one of these theories more seriously than the others. Uh, so yeah, some physicists speculate that the Big Bang is in the beginning of the universe, but there is no proof thus far. But it's something that one should certainly uh, consider seriously because it certainly does fit into the laws of physics. Yeah, it's possible. Karthik Srinivas says, is HD140283 Methuselah star older than the universe? <laughs> Well, it's a star. Okay, what is this Methuselah star? It is a star that is located about 190 light years from here, from the Earth, from our solar system. So it's not really very far. It's essentially in our galactic neighborhood, in our corner of the galaxy, more or less. Yeah, it's not far. The galaxy is massive. Uh, so this star 
is is somewhat blue shifted which indicates that it's moving towards us rather than going away from us and it's just 190 kilometers from 190 light years from the earth now um so this star i believe has been known for a century or more and various uh, calculations have been done as to uh figure out how ex- exactly how far it is from earth using the parallax method and various other methods and what we know is that this is a, a this is a iron deficient star uh, this star has very low abundances of the heavier elements like iron etc which kind of indicates that it was born it was formed in the very early universe when the heavier elements hadn't been formed so how do the how are the heavier elements formed they are formed in the end stages or later stages of, of nuclear fusion in massive stars but in the very early universe you would not have had these massive stars see uh, the first stars in the universe uh, emerged when the universe was about 100 million years old the first light in the universe was a quarter of a million years after the big bang the first stars were born about 100 million years after the big bang and the first galaxies came about 330 million years after the big bang the oldest galaxy that has been found it was discovered by the james webb space telescope it's called glass z13 it's believed to be about 330 million years uh, it was believed to have formed about 330 million years after the big bang now so the first stars emerged a hundred million years after the big bang and it's only after these stars would have died that the heavier elements like iron etc would have been spewed out in supernova explosions into into space into interstellar space and it's only the second generation stars that would have been uh, richer in these heavier elements so this star the methuselah star is a star that is very deficient in heavy elements which indicates it's one of the first stars to be born in the universe and various calculations have shown that it's either 17 billion years old or 14 point something billion years old or 13.7 billion years old so it's either older than the universe or as old as the universe and that's a big mystery because how can anything be older than the universe especially when this star is part of a of a universe So yeah it is a big mystery and thus far it has not been resolved if you look at the star it's kind of bluish let's take a look at the, what it looks like methuselah m e t h u s e l e a h star methu methuselah i don't know where this names come from but whatever methuselah what's it look like it looks bluish and why is it look bluish because it is uh, blue shifted it's kind of moving towards us yeah So this is the star that which is a great abiding mystery all the calculations uh, and how do you in, uh, calculate how old it is you first have to d- figure out how far it is from the earth from the solar system you do it through a variety of methods and then you figure out the the luminosity of the star which kind of tells you uh, gives you various things so that's how you you calculate this thing right so the distance and luminosity luminosity tell you Of, give you various indications about the star the data yep so this star is a big mystery all the best calculations say that it's either older than the universe 
or as old as the universe certainly it certainly predates the first stars that were born in the universe and why is it so we still don't know so it's one of the big mysteries in astronomy and astrophysics and that's why it is the subject of significant research dr nishche gonge says why shouldn't we look directly at a solar eclipse is it harmful in any way please comment about lunar eclipses as well okay firstly lunar eclipses and solar eclipses are very different yeah what is a lunar eclipse the a lunar eclipse is when the earth's shadow falls on the moon and completely eclipses it so the entire moon goes black goes dark right so that comes that happens when the earth comes between the sun and the moon which is something that happens much more frequently than a solar eclipse yeah so a lunar eclipse is essentially the earth's shadow falling on the moon which is when the earth comes between the uh, the moon and the sun that's a lunar eclipse it's perfectly fine to look at a lunar eclipse it's not going to hurt your eyes in any way whatsoever right so next time there's a lunar eclipse go out there and take a look enjoy it's fun to watch now what's a solar eclipse a solar eclipse is much more rare rare rarer a solar eclipse is when the moon comes between where you are on the planet and the sun so it is the moon's shadow falling on the earth now the moon's shadow is quite fast so solar eclipse lasts only for a few minutes and then the solar eclipse goes away so if you are fortunate enough to be in the path of the totality of the eclipse that's when you are able to see a, a complete a full solar eclipse otherwise you will only see a partial solar eclipse now here's the thing um it is actually i be careful when i say this and when I, and and i i request none of you to try it but when you, you have the totality of the solar eclipse when the sol, sun is completely eclipsed by the moon it's actually safe to look at it uh with naked eyes yeah however the problem with these solar eclipses is that they are very brief and it may catch you by surprise that the moon suddenly moves out of the way and the full sunlight comes at you right so the sun's light is extremely bright it's very harmful um as kids i think most of us we we do this this silly thing of trying to look at the sun i surely did that i suddenly did that when i was a kid you know less than 10 years old looking staring at the sun and trying to see trying to see if i can look at the sun yeah and when you do that you have this natural reflex of the eyes you know try to close or to involuntarily you may try to keep them open but they close right they close at least halfway so that shields you from the radiation of the sun and secondly the pupils of the eyes they contract to pinpricks so that ensures that very little sunlight comes into the eyes so even as a kid if you're trying to look at the sun you have all these defense mechanisms and protections that ensure that you don't suffer any real damage to your to your retina because the sun's light the radiation is extremely intense very bright it can destroy the retina that's uh, that's behind the eye right behind the pupil of the eye at the other side uh, the other side of the, uh, of the of the eyeball and if you do that you're going to have permanent damage now when you're looking at the solar eclipse and it, let's say it's a full solar eclipse so the sun has gone completely dark if you're doing that then first of all your eyes are not you know squeezed half shut like that and secondly your pupils are fully open they're fully open they're allowing the maximum amount of light to go into your retina and then if 
by the, the moon surprises you and just moves out of the way and you the the, the first uh, rays of light coming out of the sun full stream then you will find yourself caught unawares your eyes are fully open and your pupils are fully dilated and they are allowing the maximum amount of light to come in and that's when you will suffer permanent damage in your retina it may it may cause blindness or partial blindness you don't want that to happen right so that's how it is so even though it is safe for a few minutes to look at the completely occluded sun when the solar eclipse is full not partial it is still highly dangerous and completely unadvisable to do that so either look at a solar eclipse by seeing the reflection of the sun in there are a variety of ways of doing it but if you are actually going to stare at the sun with your own eyes you need to use those dark glasses or whatever the, the standard equipment the, the uh, standard equipment that is provided for seeing a solar eclipse that's typically very thick dark glasses right so that's what happens the sun's rays are extremely energetic very bright there's a whole amount of there's a whole spectrum of radiation that comes in you know the far the far infrared infrared right light also which is very which is almost like ionizing radiation and all that so all of that is going to destroy your eyes if you try to do this so please don't do it please do not do it at all don't ever try it alpha beta says why do wrinkles appear we can can we be old without having wrinkles too wrinkles uh, appear on uh, human beings skin it's it's the because of the process of aging so if you have an infant the skin is very very flexible very very soft yeah and very healthy but as a human being ages you know past a certain age the wrinkles appear because of a number of reasons first of all the skin becomes less flexible less stretchable stretchable that is number one secondly the the natural oils that the skin typically uh, uh, gives off the skin especially the face is typically a little bit oily right uh, some people are have more oily some skin some people have less oily skin but the skin it gives off these natural oils and that also contributes to keeping the skin flexible stretchable and and uh, healthy and young so as a person ages firstly the the flexibility of the skin decreases secondly the amount of oil that is uh, emitted by the skin that also decreases and thirdly the amount of fat that is below the surface of the skin you know that also kind of decreases so all of these factors contribute to these wrinkles appearing on on not just a person's face but the hands and whatever else right so yeah that's that's how it happens it's all because of the process of aging now the process of aging aging uh, how it happens it is believed to be because of the shortening of the telomeres at the ends of your chromosomes so inside your cells not the red blood cells but the other cells you have these chromosomes that contain your genetic blueprint the dna right and at the ends of the chromosomes you have something called telomeres so these telomeres uh, as the cell division happens again and again and again and again which is natural in a in a healthy body every time cell division happens the telomeres are shortened a little bit and it is believed that the shortening of the telomeres at the ends of the chromosomes that is what contributes to the process of aging right and there is all this research that's happening in, into how to reverse or either either reverse or or at least stop the lengthening of the telomeres and that could possibly uh, 
help ward off aging or delay aging at least yeah that's the kind of research that's that's the hope that these researchers have i mean who doesn't want to live forever or at least live uh, to 150 or 200 right that would be great some people think so yeah so anyway the wrinkles they appear because of these reasons not the maybe the telomere lengthening or shortening shortening actually could contribute to it but over time as the years go by the flexibility and stretchability of the skin decreases it becomes more brittle the amount of oil that's exuded by the skin also decreases. That also contributes to more brittleness and more inflexibility of the skin. And the amount of fat that's at the subcutaneous level also decreases. And all of these factors contribute to the appearance of wrinkles, which uh, become more pronounced with age. Right? That's the natural progression of how wrinkles appear on people's skin. So uh, the question is, can we be old without having wrinkles? I have no idea. I don't know. It's part of aging. So it's, it's just how it is. So maybe in the future, scientists will invent some, some, some mechanism by which the aging process could be slowed down or, or stopped altogether or maybe even reversed. Who knows? Hmm? Maybe there will be some skin oil, skin cream, or maybe some tablet to take or some gene therapy or whatever. So yeah, in the future, this sort of thing may happen. But as of today, I don't think it's possible to get old without having wrinkles. Uh, Every person who ages will develop some amount of wrinkles, I suppose. Yeah, that's just how it is. Swapnil again. Mm. What are brine pools? How are they made and where are they located in the oceans? If sea creatures are able to survive in them, could it give astrobiologists a hint on how life could thrive on other worlds? Okay, let's see what brine pools look like. Okay, first of all, what are brine pools? To answer what are brine pools, we must first answer what is brine. So brine is seawater with a very high degree of salinity. I think what is the typical salinity percentage of seawater? 3% salt? Not sure. Okay, don't quote me on, the, on that. But uh, typically brine is seawater with 10 times that much salinity. So if on average seawater has 3% salt, 3 ppm of salt, then brine could have 30 ppm of salt or maybe more than that, maybe 50. So it's very concentrated and very saline. Yeah, it's, its salinity is way higher than your typical regular salt water in the oceans. So that is brine. So what are brine pools? These are regions in the ocean at the bottom of the oceans where you have a collection of brine so brine is is this water with extremely high salinity much higher than the rest of the ocean and because of the extremely high salinity salinity it is much denser than ocean water and that's why it congregates in one place and it forms these pools that create indentations on the ocean floors so it's like a lake it's like a lake on the ocean floor, a lake of brine on the ocean floor, right? So let's take a look at what these things look like. If they, we have examples, brine, brine pool. Let's see what a brine pool looks like. And let's put that on the screen, image. Okay, here's an example of a brine pool. As you can see, it's like a lake on the bottom of the ocean. Underwater lakes of despair, they're called. So these are lakes. And they actually look like craters because the brine is much denser and therefore it, it creates these depressions on the ocean floor. 
and uh, yeah you can look at the you can see the color is different and it just looks different from regular ocean water now one of the things about brine first of all we know we know it's extremely saline its salinity is very high secondly it also is anoxic so because of the extreme salinity it also becomes the water also becomes anoxic what is anoxic water it means water with very little dissolved oxygen so if you have if you see various kinds of marine life whether it is fish whether it is crustaceans crabs lobsters prawns shrimps whatever they all live by by extracting the dissolved oxygen out of the ocean ocean water and they use it they do it through these organs called gills right gills now if an organism like let's say a crab or a fish were to go and swim into a brine pool they would immediately find that there is very little oxygen here and the salinity is very high and if they stay there for more than a few seconds they 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 will go into hypoxia which means their brain will stop receiving uh, oxygen and they will die so typically you find lots of dead animals marine animals fish crustaceans etc inside brine pools and that's why they call them what these pools of despair or whatever so any any uh, sea animal sea creature that goes into it will almost instantaneously die so that is what uh, the, what you have in brine pools but on the on the edges of this brine pools you have certain kinds of life uh, certain organisms that are called extremophiles yeah uh, that that undergo chemosynthesis so we have photosynthesis in which uh, light is used to create uh, various uh, forms of energy chemical energy yeah so chemosynthesis is when this sort of uh, reaction happens without the need for light that's chemosynthesis so you have these extremophile animals that can live on the edges of brine pools but not inside brine pools right so that's what it is so the question is how do these brine pools how are they made how do they form i believe how brine pools are formed how is brine formed inside oceans i think it happens in cold regions of the ocean so when uh, on the surface of the ocean when you have very low temperatures below below freezing temperatures that's when the ocean waters freeze you have the formation of icebergs and ice sheets etc et right in the polar and antarctic regions of the of the earth and in cold latitudes yes you have this happening so when water freezes and becomes ice the salt molecules aren't able to become a part of the crystalline ice structure the ice crystals so there is this process called salt rejection i think so when the water freezes salt is rejected so these ice uh, structures they are less saline than the actual ice the, the actual ocean water so all of this salt that is rejected it goes back into the ocean and it forms brine and that's how the brine is formed and that's how then the brine is denser than the ocean water that's why it sinks to the bottom of the oceans and in some places you have the big collections of uh, collections of brine and that's what these brine pools are so yeah that's the answer and uh, if sea creatures are able to survive in them could it give astrobiologists a life uh, a hint on how life could thrive on other worlds possibly possibly yeah astrobiologists are always in the, on the lookout for strange forms of life on our planet uh, we have various extremophile organisms such as uh, at deep sea vents when you have these uh, 
these essentially these volcanic openings on the sea floor which give which which give rise to very very strange biology in the, in those regions yeah life that can thrive without sunlight extremophile life so similarly around brain brain pools we have these uh, organisms that undergo chemosynthesis chemosynthesis yeah these are also extremophile creatures they that also could give some some hints as to how what kind of life could thrive in extreme environments yeah so certainly something that they would want to study pulkit says how is a black hole formed do you think there's a possible end to it or is it just like a space animal with never ending with never ending hunger if there's any what impact could it create in space in the last stages of its of its death okay how is a black hole formed your typical regular stellar mass black holes they are formed at the end stage of a super, supernova eruption explosion yeah so let's say you have this massive star let's say it's 20 times the mass of the sun 50 times the mass of the sun massive star it uh, in the end stage it uh, collapses upon itself yeah and uh, this collapse gives rise to an explosion the supernova explosion but at the very core of the star you're going to have these crushing gravitational forces that will repel any of the uh, electron degeneracy pressure or any other thing that can you know keep it off and that's how it causes this this collapse of the star a region of over density that is too dense for even light to escape and that's what creates a black hole that's what gives rise to a black hole in some cases we find that stars possibly collapse into black holes without ever reaching the supernova stage you know there are these old star maps star images that are taken over the decades and sometimes we find that stars have just disappeared stars that were shining let's say in the 1970s 1980s today if you look at the same part of the sky that star no longer is there it's just winked off yeah so maybe it's a star that collapsed directly into a black hole so typically it's because of this yeah the end stage of a star's life or actually the end stage of a star's death that's what gives rise to a black hole when the star the, the nuclear fusion reaction is no longer able to uh, continue and the entire mass of the star collapses upon its core and that is the core collapse uh, typically there's a supernova but sometimes by some reaction by some mechanism you may have collapsed directly into a black hole so that is your typical uh, stellar mass black hole that's how it is formed um super supermassive black holes because we don't quite know how they are formed because for a black hole to become that large it would take a time that is longer than the actual age of the universe so supermassive black holes the formation mechanism is kind of a mystery uh, you typically have a supermassive black hole at the center of every galaxy most galaxies our own galaxy has a massive supermassive black hole at its center uh, and so on so how they are formed they they it is speculated that they it was primordial black holes that formed the seeds of supermassive black holes that's that's a possibility so what are these primordial black holes primordial black holes are, are black holes that could have formed in the very early universe as regions of over densities yeah uh because of quantum fluctuations in the very early universe so those would be typically microscopic black holes mbh or pbh primordial black holes uh and it's possible that they could be a significant component of dark matter today yeah in in various forms so that's how a black hole is formed is there is it possible there's an end to black holes yes black holes 
black holes of temperature they are thermodynamic objects and anything that has a temperature radiates it radiates radiation so black holes uh, radiate black body radiation and black holes have a temperature that's why they radiate uh, and this radiation is called hawking radiation and it's essentially like a process of evaporation yeah and because of that black holes typically become smaller over time as they evaporate away their their uh, mass energy so the black holes any black holes temperature is inversely proportional with size the larger the surface area the lower the temperature so supermassive black holes are typically extremely cold even colder than the uh, temperature of the cosmic microwave background radiation so in a sense bl supermassive black holes can never die because they are actually accreting mass rather than rather than uh, emitting radiation because they are at a temperature that's lower than the ambient temperature but smaller black holes are hotter and they would emit hawking radiation which says that uh, every black hole has a certain lifespan you can calculate the lifespan quite easily actually if you if you know if you know the physics yeah so every black hole has a certain life span life span you can calculate that and eventually as the black hole becomes smaller it becomes hotter as it become ho becomes hotter it radiates faster it becomes even smaller so the end stage of a black hole's life is a massive explosion boom so black holes die in explosions that's what the theory tells us we have never seen these explosions thus far but it's possible that it is the end stage eruption or explosion of the hawking radiation of a black hole's end stage life that could be the 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 progenitor of certain classes of of ultra high energy cosmic rays it's possible it is indeed a possibility so that's what that's the kind of uh, life cycle a black hole has there is certainly a possible end to black holes in their lives yeah so yeah so what what impact would it create in space at, at the last stages of its death it would be a big flash of radiation flash of light and things spewing out of it at very at relativistic velocities it could be possibly something that gives rise to the so the the gamma ray bursts possibly short lived gamma ray bursts and so on yeah avinash singh says if i enter into a black hole hmm if i enter a black hole will the time stop for me as soon as i cross the event horizon or does the time stop after i reach or when i reach the singularity if time stops just after crossing the event horizon does it mean wouldn't wouldn't it mean that i'll be stuck at the event horizon and will not reach the singularity because when time stops nothing can move from its place okay what happens so we have to understand time dilation which is uh, an effect of relativity time dilation dilation is something you study when you're studying special relativity but it's uh, something that you experience because of mass and and velocity and all that so the concept is very simple the faster you go the slower your time is but you will not sense time slowing down for you time goes on the same let's say you have twins two two brothers twin brothers one is on earth and one goes into a, on into space on a rocket yeah at a relativistic velocity let's say half the speed of light yeah so we we put two identical clocks with these two twins the same clock one with the twin on the rocket and one with the twin on the earth and our friend on the rocket he goes away 
and he has this clock which tells him that one year has elapsed and then after one year has elapsed he comes back to, to the earth and he will find that maybe 30 or 40 years on on earth have elapsed so for him only one year went by but for his twin on on earth 30 or 40 years had elapsed in the same time so the clocks move differently the the rate at which time flows in the rocket is different from the rate at which time flows on the earth it's very confusing but it's actually quite simple so so if you are on, on earth you will you will see that the time on the rocket is is flowing very slowly as the as the rocket is going very fast now let's say you are falling into a black hole yeah let's say you have two observers let's say you have two two human beings one human being is at a distance of let's say a thousand kilometers from the black hole in orbit around the black hole so this person is in no danger of falling into the black hole so he can observe what's happening the other person which is you my dear friend you're going into the black hole so let's say your friend is in orbit around the black hole he's not falling but he's going to observe what happens to you and you are falling into the black hole now the presence of mass also slows time down so the closer you come to the black hole the slower your time is if you're wearing a watch for you the time will pass just normally but your friend who is sitting far away will see your progress towards the black hole slow down and when you reach the event horizon you for for your friend who is sitting far away you will appear to have frozen in time he will never see you enter the black hole for your friend who is sitting far away you will seem like you have just become stuck to the event horizon and you are not going any any anywhere further from there but you actually will enter the event horizon and you will go into the black hole yeah so for you time doesn't stop or time doesn't slow down but from the perspective of a distant observer you will slowly 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 stop at the event horizon now what happens to you when you come inside the event horizon so uh once you enter once you cross the event horizon and you move towards the singularity it i think you will experience all the future time of, of the universe until the end of the universe so before you reach the singularity you will experience all the future events or something like that yeah so it's not very well understood yet but yeah that's it, it's kind of like that of course before that you will die because you will be stretched out into a spaghetti kind of thing so <laughs> so only in case you have uh, an indestructible consciousness will you be able to experience future time and all that it's very weird and it's still not very well understood because as you go deeper towards the singularity the mathematics of general relativity breaks down and you have a singularity yeah because which which obviously should not exist because it is unphysical anyhow that's how it is so uh, for you who is entering the black hole time doesn't stop time doesn't even slow down for you it's just a few minutes and you're in and the smaller the black hole the more the spaghettification if it's a supermassive black hole you will feel nothing as you enter the event as you cross the event horizon but if it is a smaller black hole uh, long before you cross the event horizon you will be stretched out into spaghetti and you would have died it's not a nice death so <laughs> that's how it is Dungar Singh Chauhan says why is a black hole called called a hole it's just a mountain of matter crushed into a tiny space should they be renamed you know what you can go ahead and rename it to whatever you want these names black hole big bang theory these are not scientific names 
typically these uh, names are coined by by non science people typically by journalists i think the 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 term black hole was coined if i'm not mistaken by some journalist and then it stuck the term stuck and then, then even scientists physicists started using it and now that's what we call them it's not really a hole right it's it's a well it's it's a region of space that is so so dense that light can't exit from it so it's not a hole it, it's 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 just pure mass essentially uh yeah so it should not be called a hole it's it's incorrect to call it a hole in space time or whatever so it, it, you want to rename it you can go ahead and call it by some other name if you wish to but it's it's the name that is stuck because it's it's it is so catchy black hole yeah and similarly big bang theory was actually a pejorative name i think it was coined coined by fred hoyle if i'm not mistaken to make fun of this theory which was so outlandish so he he coined this this term big bang to make fun of the theory as, as a means of disrespecting the theory but it it kind of stuck and then this theory took off because it 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 makes a lot of sense from all the observational evidence that we have so now it's called the big bang theory even though it's not it was not a bang or an explosion it was not an explosion it was an expansion of space time so that's how it is sometimes you have all these weird unscientific terms that stick and then even scientists start using them yeah so yeah if you want to rename black hole to something more appropriate you can go ahead and do that and if it is catchy enough it may catch on okay dash plays says does light bend towards the gravity or does every wavelength of light bend towards gravity um light and gravity has this see what what happens is this mass curves space time curvature we live in four dimensional space time we experience the three dimensions of space top down uh up down backward forward and whatever right three dimensions of space time this this way the three dimensional coordinate geometry that we experience in the real world there's a fourth dimension which is time which we experience very vaguely so they, these four dimensions they form the fabric of space time we cannot imagine four dimensional space time we can only imagine the world in three dimensions but space time is in four dimensions now if you have a mass let's say a planet or a star that is going to warp and curve space time we know the 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 typical trampoline image that they show us right uh, curved space time let me see curved space time yeah the typical image that they show you to illustrate how how this works let me show you that uh one second let me put that on the screen curved space time so you know how it is right it's like a trampoline on which you put a mass a ball and that that curves the trampoline surface and that is the curvature of space time which actually doesn't make much sense because we you're seeing space time as a is a two dimensional thing a better way of of visualizing this is by looking at this image let me show you that so this is the actual curvature of space time right the entire for you you seeing curvature of spatial space time in three dimensions here it's actually four dimensions which you cannot visualize but this is a better way of looking at it so the mass the presence of mass curves and warps 
the fabric of space-time itself. Now, if you have a beam of light that is traveling straight, but then you have this mass sitting there, which you can see there, 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 yeah? Then the beam of light will not be able to travel in a straight line. It, it will travel in a curved path because the space itself is curved, right? And the time itself is curved. So that's why gravity bends the path of light. And yes, every wavelength of life, light is bent. It doesn't matter what, what wavelength the light has, it, it, it is all bent. Because the, the, the path itself is, is curved. Let's say, imagine that the light is like a car traveling on a road. If the road is straight, the, the, light will, the, the car will travel straight. But if the road is curved, then the car will have to travel in a curved path. That's how it is. Yeah. So light is bent by gravity because space-time itself is warped. It is curved. It is bent by gravity. And yes, every wavelength of light is curved, is bent. Its, its path is bent by gravity. Dash plays again. Does gravity of anti-matter... Okay, what he's asking is, does anti-matter have repulsive gravity? Right, that's what he's asking. So you have two kinds of matter. You have regular matter that we are made of, yeah, and you have antimatter. So the question is, does antimatter have repulsive gravity or, or negative gravity? Which means that instead of falling up, it should fall down. No, that is not the case because we have manufactured very, very small, tiny quantities of antimatter in labs, yeah, in various colliders, etc. And it behaves gravitationally just the same as regular matter. So unfortunately, antimatter doesn't have the interesting property of having repulsive gravity. It just has regular gravity. Repulsive gravity, we, we haven't found anything, any substance that, that has that property. Yeah, negative, negative mass or something like that. Yeah, we still haven't found that. Avinash says, if a distant solar system is millions of light years away, and so we see it as it was millions of years ago. How can it see? How can we see what it looks like now? Simple answer: We can't see what it looks like now. Impossible. Simply can't happen. Won't happen ever, unless you sit on a spacecraft, you travel all the way there, and then once you are there, you can see how it is right now, for your right now. But for for us over here, it will be different. Yeah. So. You have this Methuselah star, which is 190 light years away. So what we see of it is what was happening 190 years ago. Yeah. So there is absolutely no way of seeing what it looks like right now. And the, 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 the concept of now doesn't really make sense in relativity. There is the relativity of simultaneity, which is a whole different thing. So an event, let's say two events occur simultaneously to me. But for somebody else, a large distance away, those two events may not appear to be simultaneous. That is also a thing. So now itself doesn't make a lot of sense from the perspective of general relativity. Yeah, the, the, the concept of now. So yeah, there's no way for us sitting here to see what something looks like right now if it is millions of light years away. Simply not possible. Simply. 
Okay, Vinu says, what are cosmic strings? What is their relationship with wormholes? Uh, cosmic strings are hypothetical, no, theoretical defects in the fabric of space-time. They are called topological defects. And they may have been the result of the expansion of space-time in the aftermath of what we call the Big Bang, you know. So these topological defects could have been produced in great quantities in the very early universe. So what are what do I mean by a topological defect? Yeah, a defect in the fabric of space-time. It's like a wrinkle in space-time. We spoke about uh, some time ago wrinkles on people's skin. Yeah, wrinkles are these these uh, deformities or malformations on the smooth surface of the skin. The skin, skin is no longer smooth. It has these, these wrinkles. Yeah. Similarly, space-time, the fabric of space-time, the four-dimensional space-time, that itself could have had wrinkles that formed in the very early universe. So what would be the property of some, some, such a wrinkle, such a cosmic string? See, it's like this. Let's say I put my finger over here and I travel all the way around. Yeah. And come back to the same point. I will travel a full 360 degrees. Yes, we know that. that that's what geometry teaches us in school. Yeah. So you take a, a pencil, a finger or whatever. You go all the way around and come back to the initial point. You will traverse a full 360 degrees. Let's say you have a cosmic string. Let's say you encounter a cosmic string. Yes. And you try to go all the way around. So you go there. You start at an initial point. You travel all the way around and you reach back at the original initial point, you will find that you have traveled less than 360 degrees. That is a defect in the fabric of space-time itself. Yeah? It's going to break all the laws of geometry and everything. So that's what it is. It is these, these cosmic strings are supposed to be extremely thin. Yeah? And they could go on up to the ends of the universe. So almost infinitely long. If the universe is, I mean, they, they would extend beyond the observable universe. And as the universe expands, they also get stretched thinner and thinner, but they don't break. So, these are the topological defects that could have formed in the very early universe. You could have had very large amounts of numbers of cosmic strings. But as the universe expands, they would become further and further spread apart. And maybe it's very hard to observe it. Now, cosmic strings, if they exist, they would have, uh, they would be gravitationally massive. They would warp uh, space-time, so they they could create gravitational lensing. So that could be one way of detecting them. Second, so, so they would have these gravitational effects. They could create gravitational lensing, uh, and yeah, there would be these defects in space-time. So if you go around them, you would end up traversing less than three sixty degrees. So that's what cosmic strings are. People have been searching for them. Nobody has found them yet. But yeah, it doesn't mean they don't exist. It means that it, if they do exist, they could be so rare. And the space is so massive that it would be very hard to detect them. Now, what is the relationship between cosmic strings and wormholes? No relationship, actually. No relationship. But the thing about wormholes is this. If you want to construct or create a wormhole, which is a hole in the fabric of space-time itself, it it's it's a it could be a hypothetical way of allowing people uh, allowing someone to travel vast distances uh, through a shortcut called a wormhole. So a wormhole 
is something that is a solution to Einstein's equations of general relativity. The thing about wormholes is that they want to snap shut. So wormholes have an opening, two openings and a neck. This neck, neck wants to snap shut immediately. Yeah. And the, the point at which it snapshots will be a black hole. That's how it is. So it's very hard to keep a wormhole open. To keep a wormhole open, you would need some exotic matter in the in the throat of the wormhole. Something like negative mass, which would have a repulsive form of gravity, which would keep the wormhole's throat open and won't allow it to snap shut. Or you could thread a cosmic string through a wormhole. And that would prevent the wormhole from closing. So that way you could engineer a wormhole that stays open if you know where a cosmic string is and you can, you can acquire it and you can put thread it through a wormhole's throat. Yeah. So that is one way in which you could have a traversable wormhole. But then obviously you will have to deal with the gravitational effects of the cosmic string and the very strange properties that it has of, of, of having these, you know, less than 360 degree travel through it and all uh, around it and all that. Yeah. So yeah, that in brief is what cosmic strings are. Dash plays again. Wow. Today is dash plays his day. So the question is, hypothetically, if we have an indestructible container with a hole continually getting filled with hydrogen, with more increasing pressure that's, that's forming inside, what will happen? Will hydrogen turn to helium in future more? If yes, what happens to remaining protons and neutrons? All right. So what you are proposing here, my dear friend, is a thought experiment, a Radankin experiment. So we don't have to build this indestructible container and fill it with hydrogen and keep filling it. We can do this experiment purely in our thoughts. We know the laws of physics. So let's see what happens. So let's say you have this, this magical container that is indestructible. Nothing can destroy it. And it has a fixed diameter, fixed radius. Yeah. You, no matter how much pressure it has inside, it, it won't change. The radius won't change. It won't break or whatever. So let's say you have this indestructible container. You start filling it. You start pumping in hydrogen gas. So as more and more hydrogen molecules get inside, hydrogen atoms go inside, yeah, the pressure inside the chamber container will increase. As the pressure increases, you're going to have an increase, corresponding increase of temperature. So the pressure keeps on increasing. The temperature also keeps on increasing. And the density keeps on increasing. Eventually, at some point in time, you will have a density which is similar to the density inside the sun. That's when you will have nuclear fusion, which will ignite. If you have a density similar to the density of the sun, you will also have a temperature similar to that of the sun. And these conditions... As you keep on pumping in more hydrogen gas, these conditions will ignite nuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium. And if you keep on pumping more and more and more hydrogen gas, you're going to have a star inside. The, the ignition of fusion itself is the formation of a star. Yeah. And if you pump in more and more hydrogen, you're going to have more and more fuel that gets converted into, into, into helium. And eventually, all the hydrogen will get converted into helium. And if you pour more hydrogen in, um, eventually you could have a, a proper stellar uh, cycle. You know, as, as the pressure keeps on increasing, 
the helium itself will undergo fusion and give rise to heavier and heavier elements and that sort of thing will go on so yeah that's an interesting thought experiment that, that that's how we can create a star if you have this sort of container you can create a star within it yeah uh, what happens to remaining protons and neutrons well the remaining protons and neutrons will be part of these newer and newer elements and eventually if you just keep on pumping in hydrogen indefinitely you will have so much density that this whole thing becomes a black hole and then we don't know what's inside yeah and if it becomes a black hole it may eat up your indestructible container too because i think black holes can eat even that so yeah that seems to be the end stage of this thought experiment interesting thought experiment good good imagination i like it Karthik says, is our universe created from nothing? Hum, hum, uh, well, we don't know. Uh, we had another question about what came before the universe, right? So, uh, we don't know what came before the universe. Was Is the universe part of a bigger multiverse kind of thing? Yeah, is it so? Uh, what came before the Big uh, before the Big Bang? Was there a, a, an older universe before, before this universe? Is Are we living in a cyclic universe? Do we have a big crunch and a big bounce kind of thing? A big bounce could happen because of LQG, loop quantum gravity. Um, is our universe a simulation? That is also a possibility. Yeah. It's not impossible. It's certainly plausible. It would not break any of the laws of physics or anything we know. So yeah, we don't have the answers to these very big questions. There are very big questions that are being asked over here. What came before the universe? What were the ingredients from which our universe was constructed and created? We don't know. We know that the universe at the very beginning was just this singularity kind of thing. Infinitely small, infinitely dense, infinitely hot. And the space-time and, and pure energy inside. Yeah, just pure energy. And then space-time expanded for whatever reason. We don't know what triggered that off. But the expansion happened, inflation happened. Then you had the formation of mass, coalescence of mass out of energy, and then the whole history of the universe. But what happened before that? What was there before the universe? We don't know. We don't have the answers. Maybe someday we, we may have them, the answers, some answers. Maybe we won't. We don't know. But yeah, we, we don't have the answers to these questions. But these are good questions that, that drive us forward and keep us curious. Dr. Nishchay Gonge says, why do the masses struggle with math and physics? Any special reason for that? Uh, yeah, typically the scariest subjects in school, college, etc. are math and physics. Math is scary because you have to solve these difficult problems. And physics is scary because it uses math. Without math, you can't do physics. So these are the two scariest subjects. Now, so the real question is, why is math so difficult? Why is math so scary? If math were easy, physics would, would not be easy. Would not be difficult either. So the reason why masses struggle with math, you know, math is the simplest and easiest thing in the world. But it has to be taught properly. The reason why most people struggle with math is because teachers teach you something and they assume that you have understood everything. Most teachers are, are mediocre teachers. They don't know how to explain things simply. The key to teaching, I believe, is to make things as simple as possible. A teacher should not try to show off how intelligent and how brilliant they are. They have to keep things as simple as is humanly possible and teach it in that manner and make sure that the recipient, the student is actually understanding what is being taught. Most teachers are like, repeat after me, this, 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 this is what I write on the blackboard, you copy it down and now you start solving problems. 
and they don't care whether the student has understood what what has they've been trying to teach i remember as a kid myself i had this terrible teacher i don't know what standard i was in third standard fourth standard i was learning decimals you know decimal places and all and you have these problems in which you have to do additions of numbers with decimal places and i clearly had not understood what decimals are because the answer which i gave had two or three different decimal places 3.1.2.3 or something like that you know eventually i i got it right through self study yeah so that's how it is you know these simple concepts have to be explained clearly and properly if you don't do it the kid the student won't understand it and then they will try to memorize things you don't memorize things in in mathematics you have to understand things conceptually and then more advanced concepts are built on top of the simpler concepts and if you don't understand the simpler concepts themselves then how are you ever going to understand the more advanced concepts so if you don't understand fractions you don't understand decimals then how are you ever going to understand trigonometry or algebra yeah and then how are you ever going to understand higher concepts like things like calculus and matrices and linear algebra algebra and what not so un- if you don't have the fundamentals down clearly there is no way you can understand higher mathematics and it is always because of bad instruction poor teaching that the fundamentals are shaky shaky in most people yeah so that's why the masses struggle with math and physics because of bad teaching because of bad teachers i believe anybody can master mathematics mathematics is just pure logic it's the simplest and easiest thing in the world provided it is taught properly and the foundations are built properly then you can study then you can learn any kind of mathematics and if you are good at math well you're going to be good at physics it's just a given so the special reason why the masses struggle with math and physics is because most teachers 99% of 95% of teachers are very poor mediocre and they don't care whether the students learn or not and they are not able to to communicate effectively and teach effectively and they don't ensure that they take the feedback from the students whether the students understood or not and they just go on forward and forward and that's that's why this happens karan says how to deal with harder topics in mathematics to deal with harder topics in mathematics ensure that you have mastered the simpler topics right if you master the simpler topics if you master the fundamentals the basics then you will have no great trouble mastering the topics that build on top of that yeah so if you want to understand multiplication you have to first master addition and maybe subtraction as well because what is multiplication it is repeated addition what is 3 times 8 it is you take 3 and you add it you take keep on adding 3 eight times that's 3 times 8 so to master so to understand multiplication you have to first properly master addition then you once you do subtra- multiplication you do then you can go into division and things like that and so on and so forth so to deal with harder topics in mathematics you have to ensure that your fundamentals your basics are very very clear you have mastered thoroughly then you can move on to harder topics of course eventually you will reach a stage where even the best fundamentals and all that will not be able to help you master certain topics because eventually mathematics becomes really abstract and most people can't deal with that 
only genius level mathematicians can deal with certain kinds of mathematics right ramanujans and john nashes and all that so uh, but most people not don't need to understand mathematics at that level so the simplest thing is master the basics master the fundamentals how do you master that problem solving solve hundreds of problems thousands of problems yeah that's it done solem viz said says it's believed that india's very own area 51 is the konka la pass on the border of Ch- on the line of actual control between india and chinese occupied aksai chin anyway locals on both sides of the border believe there is an underground ufo base in this region please enlighten us to inspire okay let's see where is this konkala a uh, place let's do that uh, let's put the map on the screen and let's search for it kongkala pass where is it let's zoom in boom there you are let's take a look at the terrain so this is the region let's zoom out a little and let's see where it is okay konkala so as you can see it's actually within india but it's on the line of actual control between indian territory and chinese occupied territory uh so so what's the deal with this place so it seems that there have been reports of unexplained aerial phenomena so what what we call ufos yeah there have been some picture let's see what the pictures look like let's see konkala let's see what it looks like konkala and let's put that on the screen give me a second let me put that on the screen is there something interesting that the screen is offering us here we are aha certain strange images have been captured not sure how true this is obviously the images are quite grainy but yeah it it is said that there is there is a there are phenomena over here that uh, cannot be explained through conventional explanations and maybe there are ufos there there may be a ufo base underground ufo base who knows what it is locals on both sides of the border i don't know about the other side of the border of the lac yeah and there have been many such reports in the himalayan regions even the mount kailash region people have photographed even taken videos of strange unexplainable lights near the summit of the mountain and so on so we don't know what it is i don't have the information i don't have the uh, any idea of what's really happening i've not been there and i'm i'm obviously not privy to any classified or sensitive information how can what are the possible explanations of these ufos one is that maybe the army the air force is testing certain aircraft that have been that have not been revealed to the, to the public you know futuristic aircraft and spacecraft that may have those circular designs or whatever that is a possibility or maybe there are actual aliens that are visiting these places for whatever reason or maybe it's just some defect or artifact in the camera lens or whatever that is causing such images so we don't know but as long as we don't capture undeniable unambiguous evidence we will not know right so uh, what i can tell you is that we don't know what's happening there 
in the future if if more evidence emerges we'll know but as of now we don't have an idea santosh says i have heard that aliens have infiltrated human society and some of the prominent world leaders are actually aliens and they have a grand plan of turning the human species into fodder of aliens <laughs> It reminds me of a series, a science fiction, science fiction series I watched as a kid. It was called it was called V. Sci-fi series V. Ah, let me show that to you. So this is the newer remake of that. I don't know how good that was, but this is the original one. So in this uh, science fiction series, you had these uh, aliens who came in. who come to earth on this massive giant spaceships yeah that look like uh, flying saucers and they look like humans but they are hiding the true nature because beneath their skin they are reptiles you know reptilian faces and all that and their 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 objective is to enslave humanity and you and use humanity for food or something like that uh yeah so that's the kind of story it was and it was i kind of loved it <laughs> this was i think this came out in the 1980s or something so not uh, not many people remember the series but it, it was very entertaining and very exciting for me because i loved aliens and i loved science fiction it was the perfect intersection of two genres for me so yeah that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of hypothesis that we are seeing here that aliens have infiltrated human society and some of the prominent world leaders are actually aliens well some leaders i can actually think of who do look like aliens somewhat i will not name them for obvious reasons but <laughs> it's an interesting prospect um do we have evidence for this obviously not but yeah there are these theories conspiracy theories about reptilians or whatever which is what uh, this series was about yeah so yeah who knows maybe some some world leaders actually do look like <laughs> they kind of do remind you of aliens anyway okay with that we have come to the end of today's questions but let's take a look at some uh, um live questions you guys got some questions for me oh i can see some interesting names coming up <laughs> uh mark who's mark i wonder who's mark <laughs> uh Okay let's take some live live chat questions <laughs> I can see some names from India also turning up as candidate alien leaders <laughs> uh, Okay Saurabh says what is a warp drive and warp speed So this is a what is a warp drive it is the the basic idea is the warping of space time so like we have discussed many times we live in four dimensional space time that's what general relativity tells us it is an extremely successful theory that explains everything we see at the large scale structure of the universe and all that so what general relativity tells us is that we live in four dimensional space time that's the fabric of the space time that we are immersed in now we know that gravity according to general relativity warps bends space time so what is a warp drive it's a hypothetical theoretical drive in which you can use the warping of space time to create a bubble that travels within space time or something like that and it can possibly travel faster than the speed of light so you're not actually breaking the laws of physics 
you're creating a bubble that travels within space time the warping of of space time the ripples in space time so to say travel faster than light which is allowed yeah that sort of thing so that is what a warp drive is it is what you find in science fiction uh, novels and movies and series uh, warp drive was popularized by star trek i believe yes warp drive warp speed all that so warp speed is a warp drive in operation which achieves superluminal velocities but yeah well um obviously we don't have the technology to do that maybe someday in the future we could have it it could be allowed by the laws of general relativity yeah okay what are other questions utkarsh says how energetic particles like photons could be something but have no mass so photons why don't they have mass because they do not interact with the higgs field in quantum field theory the world is made up of fields everything we see is just an illusion all particles are local um uh the, the, there are local uh disturbances in space time uh, in in these in these fields so there is an electron field and every electron in my body is is part of that electron field and so on so there are 17 fields in the standard model and there is the higgs field so photons photons are particles are bosons that do not interact with the higgs field the higgs field is what gives the universe its mass the interaction with various particles with the higgs field gives these particles mass if a particle interacts strongly with the higgs field it is a high mass if a particle interacts very weakly with the higgs field it is a low mass and if a particle simply doesn't interact with the higgs field it has no mass so photons do not interact with the higgs field therefore they have no mass but they have energy photons are packets of energy yes now we have the very famous the most famous equation in physics e equals mc squared by which energy has an equivalent mass and mass has an equivalent energy and so that that's how photons do have energy which is equivalent to mass and that's why you can construct a black hole out of photons only you know you can construct a black hole mathematically using the laws of quantum mechanics and you can create a black hole just out of photons it's a different kind of black hole from the black hole of general relativity but yeah it does you can actually you actually actually can do that so yeah that's your answer dear sir let's see what else do we have karan says what will happen when fossil fuels get exhausted well then all of that will be re- released as carbon into the atmosphere you'll have a significant amount of carbon uh in the atmosphere a lot of global warming and all that yeah the the global warming will be con- will happen because of that and of course we will have no more fossil fuels no more petrol diesel kerosene jet fuel whatever to burn no more coal and then we will have to look for other sources of of energy so we better get going and start start uh, you know experimenting with, with various different technologies so yeah that's at the rate at which we are going we could have maybe a century more of fossil fuels and then everything would will possibly uh get exhausted and then we'll have to find some other other ways of 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 uh, acquiring or extracting energy um people are asking me questions about history i don't know why they do that on a science day please don't do that 
we'll discuss history tomorrow i promise today it is about science right where are we what do we have the what's my opinion on homo homeopathy homeopathy is a, is the placebo effect it's so homeopathic practitioners have found excellent ways of inducing the placebo effect and that's why it seems to work in certain cases yeah but uh, it obviously can't cure cancer or any serious diseases so that's my opinion it's 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 a nice way of inducing the placebo effect um what is quantum entanglement it's it's when you have a system of two or more particles that has a single wave function so you can't describe the 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 any of the particles alone you have to describe the system as a whole and if you know the properties of one part of the system you immediately know the properties instantaneously of the other part of the system let's say you have a particle with spin zero which splits into two particles which one particle with spin up one particle with spin down and they go in different directions after a million million years they are um, let's say 10 light years away from each other so the distance is 10 light years now let's say i i i measure one of the particles and i see it is spin up then i will immediately instantaneously know that the other particle which is 10 light years away has spin down so i know by looking at one particle instantaneously the, the properties of the other particle which is 10 light years away or maybe a million light years away so you kind of have this information that i'm getting about about a particle that is a 100 that is a million light years away instantaneously so that looks like information traveling faster than the speed of light kind of right but it's not quite so but yeah that's how it is it's a very spooky property and that's what quantum entanglement is in very brief in very yeah um what else do we have pratik says can spinning black holes radiate gravitational waves as accelerating masses do radiate yes spinning black holes will give what they will do is they will kind of drag space time with the spin so the black hole is spinning and the spinning of the black hole will cause space time to be dragged along kind of with it so let's say you have a ball in water and you spin it the water kind of drags around, is dragged along with the with the spinning of the ball it it creates this vortex kind of shape right so similarly a spinning black hole will drag space time with it and any kind of uh any 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 such thing in space time will give off gravitational waves so yes spinning black holes do radiate gravitational waves merging black holes radiate gravitational waves and so on yeah so that's the answer they do radiate gravitational waves does life exist on other galaxies well we don't know we don't know it may be so but we have never found any unambiguous evidence of that um what is a white hole a white hole is a certain kind of a solution of the einstein equations of general relativity in which which is the opposite of a black hole so white holes so we know that black holes have an event horizon white holes also have an event horizon for the black hole for a black hole the event horizon is a point of no return if you are falling towards a black hole if you cross the event horizon you can never come back out in the case of a white hole the event horizon is the place beyond which you cannot go inside a white hole is like a time reversed black hole 
a white hole spews out matter and energy and radiation it cannot absorb anything it's like a time reversed black hole and apart from that a white hole could have very similar properties to a black hole the gravitational effects would be more or less the same so in some cases in in some galaxies you have these uh, active galactic nuclei which spew off enormous amounts of light and radiation and mass you know these jets of radiation coming out of them some people believe some scientists believe they actually actually could be white holes spewing out spewing out radiation and matter and we still don't know how to figure out whether it's a black hole or a white hole so yeah so that's what a white hole is it is, it is like a time reversed black hole um do you believe in the multiverse we don't know if if a multiverse exists because we have no evidence of it but it is possible it could exist so i say 50 50 maybe yes maybe no i don't know i don't believe things there's no belief in science you look at the the evidence and the data you have and then you based your understanding of of the universe based on that on the evidence do we have evidence of a multiverse no so that would indicate indicate that a multiverse well that doesn't prove that the multiverse doesn't, doesn't exist so that's why it's not exactly science it's not falsifiable so it's possible but we don't know gorov says what do you think about the theory of brain capacity use that what if we use only 15 or 20% of the brain um that's not quite true there there are this popular science fiction depictions of humans only use 2% of the brain or 10% of, of the brain capacity that is not very quite 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 true um it, the, what are the movie uh limitless or something right limitless you take a brain and suddenly you expand and you use all of your brain capacity the brain functions in a certain way you start fiddling with it you're going to have problems um so i do not agree with the theory of brain capacity that only 5% or 10% is being used there is something called the subconscious brain that we are not aware of the subconscious mind that is active but we are not aware of it you know and it manifests itself in a variety of ways when we are asleep we are dreaming that is the subconscious mind at work when you play sports and you have learned behaviors that is subconscious mind coming and manifesting itself in your in your let's say your your cricket bowling or or golf swing or whatever that's your learned something that you that is a result of of your muscle memory and so on so it's not quite true that we use only a little bit of the brain's per capacity we actually use all of it okay where else are we what else do we have um lucy yeah yeah movie called lucy yeah, i think i'd seen it uh what else so this is a question i asked a few seconds ago is can there possibly be intelligent life on other planets of the solar system before on earth possible but we don't have evidence possible it's not impossible okay what else uh my opinion on sheldon cooper from big bang theory it was a fun series to watch initially 
I had actually watched a few episodes of the first season. It was very funny, very hilarious. Physicists aren't quite like that. You know, today I think everyone believes that physicists behave like, like Sheldon Cooper. <laughs> uh, not quite the case. But yeah, it was it was a very, very, very funny series, especially in the first season. Afterwards, I don't know what happens. And Sheldon Cooper, Sheldon Cooper was obviously the most interesting and most the funniest character. Yeah. The stereotypical, archetypal, theoretical physicist. Uh, do we have any other interesting questions? Shaheen says, what's a magnetar? I think a magnetar is a highly magnetized pulsar, if I'm not mistaken. A pulsar is a star that uh, that pulses, pulses in radio frequency, yeah? So a few times every second or, or every few seconds, it gives off this radio radio frequency pulses, uh, radio waves. Uh, and initially, it was when pulsars were, were discovered, it was believed that they, it was thought that these are uh, signals of from alien civilizations because they were so repetitive and so I mean, yeah, so well, exactly spaced apart in time. Yeah, but eventually it was discovered that it's a kind of astrophysical object, a pulsar. I think a magnetar is a is a highly magnetized pulsar, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, haven't studied magnetars in depth, but yeah, I think that's what it is. How can we use Wikipedia intelligently? So for science, when it comes to science, Wikipedia is a good source, reasonably good source. The thing about Wikipedia is that it's it, it can be edited essentially by anybody. So you have to be careful about the information. If you want to study science, you better study science from your textbooks or from uh, textbooks are the, are the best source. Yeah. But yeah, Wikipedia is, go, is good for referring to things and looking at the latest research. So I would say the most intelligent way of using Wikipedia is to look at the sources, the references that Wikipedia gives. Yeah. And you can look at the references because they could be more authoritative. But you always have to remember at the end of the day that Wikipedia is could be wrong about various things. When it comes to history, it's very often wrong. There's a lot of distortion when it comes to history. But in science, it's more typically a better resource than for history. So the best way, the most intelligent way to use Wikipedia is to use it for gathering good references. But then you will have to study the references and, and judge for yourself whether they are reliable or not. But it's a great place to uh, gather references. Okay, let's take one more question for today. Once again, you get questions about history. Her <laughs> uh, says, don't donate to Wikipedia. That's the best way to intelligently use Wikipedia. I agree with Harsh. Don't donate to Wikipedia. Um, anything else? Anything else? Once again, I'm getting questions about history. I, you know, there's a reason why I stopped doing those video chats. You know, remember I used to do video chats once in a while. I would, I would invite people to talk to me face to face on video chat. I stopped doing that. The primary reason is that people simply don't follow the rules. If today is a science session and I get somebody on video chat and they start asking me questions about history. Now, I feel sorry to say, to tell them to go away and be breaking the rules because it's a, it's a, people simply will not follow instructions for some reason. Today is 
today's live stream is about science but i see over here in the live chat people asking me questions again and again and again about history i just don't get it why why do you guys do this stick to science for today tomorrow you can ask questions about history tomorrow uh shall i get <laughs> while i am saying this people ask me this <laughs> okay this actually is not about history how do you retain so much knowledge okay that that's not a bad question okay uh how do i retain so much knowledge how do i retain knowledge first of all i read a lot i've been reading a lot since i was a kid maybe since I, the I, the first novel full length novel i read i read it when i was 7 years old it was a novel written in the 19th century called the coral island so yeah i've been reading for a very long time since i was a kid and my reading speed is very very high i can read very fast i can read a single page in like a matter of seconds it's something that i have developed over a long period of time so yeah it's not some superpower that i have it's it's like a muscle you build a muscle over time it takes years to build muscles right similarly the reading speed becomes better as you read more and more so my reading reading speed is very high i am very comfortable reading a lot it's what i've been doing for years so typically at least for me i i find it easier to gather knowledge by reading than by watching videos for some people podcasts are a great thing fine everybody is different so some people can gain a lot of knowledge by watching podcasts by listening to podcasts by watching various youtube videos for me the best way to gain knowledge from my perspective is by reading secondly i always give myself permission to forget what i read i i tell myself i will remember only what i find interesting so i buy books i many books i don't finish them or in some books i only read certain sections whatever i find interesting and the moment it stops i mean i it stops uh, interesting me i give up i try re- try to read a little bit more but if if it stops holding my interest i give up you know i stop i stop reading so i give myself the permission to forget everything that way i rem- remember what i find interesting and that's how i learn so typically if you have a textbook and you are told to study it you you are told to memorize every goddamn thing you have to memorize every sentence you have to remember every equation you have to remember every line or whatever it is I, that's not how i read that's not how i study i give myself permission to forget as much as i can as much as possible my objective is to forget everything only retain what is interesting and that's how i always operated and that's how i learned so maybe it's something you guys can try if if you think it makes sense to you and with that we are at the end of today's session we have once again crossed 2 hours which is the objective these days <laughs> right all right so today's session is done thank you very much for the questions and for the wonderful chat and i will see you in tomorrow's session which will be a different topic history uh, history geopolitics current affairs etc until then take care and uh, I'll see you soon. Bye.